0: Welcome to Dial P for Procurement, a show focused on today's biggest spin, supplier and contract management related business opportunities. Dial P investigates the nuanced and constantly evolving boundary of the procurement supply chain divide with a broadcast of engaged executives, providers and thought leaders. Give us an hour and we'll provide you with a new perspective on supply chain value. And now it's time to Dial P for Procurement.
1: Hi, my name is Kelly Barner, and I am your host for Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. I'm joined today by a very special guest. Now, this goes back to an audio-only episode that I did maybe about a month or so ago at this point. And this is an opportunity for me to bring in someone who has relevant expertise in the area of this story and dig a little bit deeper so that we can all truly learn from what we've heard in the news so Wen Shea, thank you so much for joining me here on Dial P. Thank you for inviting
2: me. It's Absolutely. Nice
1: to and you actually were in the first podcast because in doing my research, I came across an article that you had done uh, that was relevant to the story of the World Trade Organization and some of the intellectual property things that are going on there. Um, and it's in your role as a patent attorney, as well as being a partner at Global IP Counselors. Um, that we're connecting. First things first, though, if you're an attorney, how did intellectual property law become your area of expertise?
2: Oh, well, that's a good question. I I'll, I'll say I went to law school during the recession and it was one of those close your eyes and point most of <laughs> time, I had a well I thought I could qualify for the patent bar. You 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 know, most of the time you need sort of a science background to go into patent law, so I had a science background in undergrad and I thought I need to leverage this to decrease the pool of people I'm competing with. So <laughs> in terms of how I got into patents, that's that's actually how I did it. And and, you know, it's, uh, and that you practice and you become acquainted with the law. And I'm very happy that this is what I chose. It's of what I'm interested in from a legal perspective, from a policy perspective, and its impact on innovation and the incentives to innovate is very important Just from what I mm-hmm. learned on the job.
1: Well, I think your story will actually resonate very well with a lot of the people watching this later. Every Mm -hmm. single person who works in procurement has their own version of that story where there was some moment where you had to close your eyes and point, and there was always unexpected circumstances that led to you being in procurement. So it's nice to know that we're not the only ones that have curly journeys to being in our final professional point.
2: It is definitely, you're definitely not the only one. (laughs) So I'm I'm
1: curious. So we know a little bit about how you got to where you are. What does a patent attorney do on the typical day?
2: Well, so for patents, there are actually a lot of specialties. And I'll just talk about my own. I'm what you call a patent prosecutor. So what we do is we help people, inventors, companies acquire patents. And a a lot, whether they're in the US or abroad, we help them get patents in the United States. And so it's patent portfolio management. We mostly practice before the USPTO. What I do is practice before the USPTO. You're talking to inventors, you're talking, you're learning about their invention, you write their application, you become acquainted with it. And then you you know, convince the PTO to give you a patent. And you have to amend, you have to use sometimes, Narrow the scope of what you're seeking to mm. have protection over. And then, you know, and then there's other sorts of specialties in terms of enforcement, litigation, and everything. But mostly what I do is help clients get, help people get patents in the United States. And then we do some foreign, you know, you want them, they're also probably filing in other countries. So you want the patent scope to be somewhat similar between the US and Europe, say, and Japan, just because it's mostly in the interest of the client to have a consistent kind of scope throughout all countries
1: and something that actually came up in what you said and i want to call this out for everyone that's joined us to watch and listen uh, Mm -hmm. because i am definitely no expert in intellectual property or law for that matter but i do know from my reading that one of the things people might not recognize about patents is that they are nationally based so a patent is awarded or applied for in one country at a time correct So you're actually talking about maybe taking something that was already patented in the United States and then trying to get that same patent passed so that it's in effect in Japan, just to pick another country, is that correct?
2: Yes, so basically you could file concurrently, but there are certain time bars. So mostly it's one year. So okay. from the earliest filing date, say you filed in Japan, you have one year to go international, one year to go to another jurisdiction like the United States. But so basically you could file at the same time if you want to, but otherwise you could file within one year. But I d- the idea is correct, is when you get a US patent, you have a right to exclude others, which is an, for making, using, or producing, making, using, or selling what's protected by your patent. So a patent is a negative right. It's not a positive right. A positive right is something like your driver's license. When you get a driver's license, you can drive a car. That's not what a patent does. It does not give you a right to make your what you have mm-hmm. in your patent it gives you a right to exclude others. And that's what's kind of an important thing to note about the basis of what a patent is.
1: Now, before we get into the central topic that we're going to talk about today, you've talked a little bit about your specific area of expertise. Um, I don't often have lawyers here on Dial P, so we want to make sure we keep everybody out of trouble. And we're going to talk about sort of thought leadership, generally discuss this story today. But is there anything that you would like to say before we get into the the news story at hand?
2: Yes, and thank you for that. I um I am a practicing attorney at a law firm, but just to note that just, these are my opinions of, of my own, and this is I'm not speaking on behalf of any organization, not speaking on behalf of my law firm or anybody else. These are just my opinions.
1: Excellent. And we're. I'm glad that you're willing to do that. Uh, this is something else that procurement professionals will actually relate to. We're often under a lot of constraints around what we can share externally, simply because so much of our knowledge is tied to the suppliers that we partner with, what we buy from them, how much we've paid. So I think people will definitely be sympathetic to your desire to draw that line between anybody else that you work with and yourself. And yet I'm thrilled that you're willing to talk about this story because it's a very interesting one. And it took me a little while to sort of understand the significance of what was going on. But I want to start us off by establishing the facts So let me give a very high-level retelling of what's happened, and then I'll pass to you when to sort of fill in some of the things that either I've left out from a detail standpoint or that somebody who doesn't specialize in patent law might not notice. Uh, But this comes down to something that's been going on at the World Trade Organization, which is an international body that exists to facilitate trade and business-related questions between member countries, Mm -hmm. Almost every country in the world belongs to the World Trade Organization. So we're effectively talking about all trading economies here. And because of the fact that patents are awarded nationally, in the past, there's been an agreement between these countries that there would be some amount of reciprocal recognition of patents from one country to another. Mm -hmm. And yet, like everything else This came under some challenge during COVID-19. I believe it started with India and South Africa came up with a proposal to waive COVID-19 vaccine patents so that they could get the information to produce those vaccines in their Mm -hmm. own country. And the discussion became one that started in 2020 the World Trade Organization and then really came back to the surface in May of 2022, when a leaked proposal came out that gave us all a little bit of a peek into how some of the different member countries might be feeling about this proposal. So I wanna pause there when, have I sort of roughly gotten the story right up to this point?
2: Yes, that's, yes, absolutely.
1: Okay, and so, as we dive into this, another one of the things that will be important, we've talked about WTO, we're going to talk about IP. I'm going to add another acronym, which is TRIPS. What is TRIPS within the scope of the World Trade Organization?
2: Well, it governs, What are the provisions of TRIPS is that it governs sort of the intellectual property. It has a lot of aspects, but it sort of governs the intellectual property aspect of the WTO. And like you said, what the WTO does is it tries to facilitate trade between countries. So going back to what we said is that patents, trademarks, copyrights, intellectual property, on a broad level, they're granted by national organizations, um, the countries themselves. There is no international governing body actually for the enforcement of patents. You have at most patent cooperation treaty, you have WIPO, but they don't. you don't have a WIPO patent. What you have is a US patent, a European patent, a Japanese patent, you have patents of individual countries. So what TRIPS overall does for the purposes of our discussion is that it just says, we will respect the patent rights of other companies, other countries, um, doing business, companies of other countries doing business within our borders, and if they should own a patent or a trademark or anything like that, and they own it within our jurisdiction, we will enforce them just as way you you would have for a member of our one of our own members uh, one of our own domestic companies. So there's no favoritism. There's no we're not going to you know, recognize your rights. They still have to apply for a patent. They still have to own a patent in your country in order to have something to enforce. But what it's really saying is that we will respect that within our borders.
1: So going back to your point earlier about the negative right, if I can p- sort of put this into a scenario, If Mm -hmm. you're in the United States and you hold a patent for something that you've invented or a trademark, and I'm based in Italy and I want to produce the same thing that you have patented, the Mm -hmm. idea would be that even if you don't hold a patent in Italy for that product or for that trademark through trips and this agreement, I'm not supposed to infringe upon your patent in Italy.
2: Unless you have an a... Italian or European patent, you technically wouldn't have, you can't enforce a U.S. patent outside of the U.S. So that, yeah, so you you could actually do what you want. And I think the thing that really bothered me about the TRIPS agreement was saying, was India and South Africa coming in and saying, oh, all these patents around the world, they're really getting in, you know, it's it's getting to be a problem for us making patents. Well, if you, if you don't want patents standing in the way of Indian manufacturers making Indian vaccines, well, just don't give them an Indian patent. They, India Patent Office could do that unilaterally. The South African Patent Office could do that unilaterally. Why are you having this entire organization get together and waiving patents in other countries in order for you to have access or the ability to make patents in your country? The thing is, is there are three... There are three enforcement mechanisms. Well, three aspects of enforcing a patent is you're preventing others from making, using, or selling. All right, so you, the making part, what we're talking about is, are they either either India or the developing countries either don't have, to have, don't grant patents within their own countries so they can make it if they want to. And the truth is, is they're not. Why? Because it's very expensive. These vaccine manufacturer, manufacturing facilities had to be created in 2020. They did, vaccine manufacturing was not a major aspect of the biopharma industry. They took warp speed money. They had to be induced economically. They formed a lot of deals bought cross-corporate deals in order to create, short these manufacturing facilities. So you need a lot of money. It has nothing to do with patents. It actually has to do with money. So you either have to give them a lot of money to make these manufacturing facilities, or what are they thinking? So the next thing is use or sell. Well, how do you use or sell these vaccines in the developing countries if they're not going, intending on making it? Well, it really goes into imports. I think that's really what they're thinking. What you could do with, in the United States at least, is that you could prevent, you could ask, when you own a U.S. patent, you could go to the International Trade Commission and have them have jurisdiction, and this commission has jurisdiction over U.S. Customs and Border Control, in which they can seize goods and serve goods that infringe your patent. So they could seize counterfeit Pumas, counterfeit Rolex, you know, so, and they could do that with other IP rights as well. So I think what they're really thinking is we will import it now. We will increase the supply of vaccines around the world. So we will import it. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing is, is you're importing already. Um, They're going into these countries already. So you don't need to waive vaccines in order to import it anyway. So I think what they're also, well, I'm just trying to think like them. Like what, what what could you possibly be thinking when you did this? So, all right. So then it's... We want other countries to waive vaccine patents as well. So not just us, so everybody else, maybe to increase the supply of vaccine makers. So that assumes two things. The U.S. owns, has manufactured facilities in the United States. So there are manufacturers in the United States. What are they thinking? You waive patents in the United States then, maybe with the assumption that it will increase supply, and then it'll eventually trickle down to the other countries. So if it increases supply, then this is an international agreement trips patents are conferred under the United States code title 35 of the United States code how can an international agreement waive rights that are conferred by a national law you can't do that so you're assuming well maybe congress will number one that's just i think illegal and there nobody's talking about that aspect aspect so all right maybe congress comes in and says well we'll adopt it and we'll waive vaccine in the United States so then you're assuming then you're just going to assume that all these people are going to start making vaccines. All these startups, like biopharma companies, all these little healthcare companies are going to build their own manufacturing facilities. Like That's not even going to happen. The yeah. big pharma companies didn't even do that. They needed warp speed money. They took a lot of money. So it doesn't make any sense from that aspect either. You know, it just, in all ways and respect, you're, I'm trying to think through all the ways of why they would want to implement something like this. And it just doesn't work in every aspect.
1: Well, I think part of what's so interesting here, and in truth, as many angles on the story as I had read, I don't think this piece of it totally hit me until you and I spoke last week, that on the one hand, you have organizations like countries, you have Mm -hmm. the World Trade Organization, which is an international organization. But on the other hand, you have for-profit companies. And I like the phrase that you used earlier, incentive to innovate, I believe is what Mm -hmm. you said. Mm -hmm. Because it really does, at the end of the day, come down to the money. And if governments want to be able to incentivize companies to do things they want them to do, it probably is going to have more to do with funding than it is to do with law. Mm -hmm. So that brings us up to the point in the story. I believe June 17th, we went from leaked proposal to this proposal being approved and accepted by all of the World Trade Organization member countries, so now, under WTO rules or guidelines, the, vac- the COVID-19 vaccines, they're now shared patents, correct? What do you I, mean shouldn't, share patents? I shouldn't say shared patents. No, nope, that's me putting it wrong. That there's a waiver on these patents. So the companies that held the patents, there's now a waiver that would allow countries like India, like South Africa, to produce what was previously patented in the United
2: States. I, so from, I'm just going to speak from memory, from what the provision is, and it's really a lot of mumbo jumbo like, even as an attorney, I think <laughs> it's hard to understand exactly what they really mean, but what it means is they have a one-time, what con- countries can do is for one time, they can list as many patents as they want for basically public use. So what, what that means is you cannot, so the owner of the patent cannot enforce, Enforce the patent against anybody else, so to prevent them from making, using, or selling. So they could list as many patents as they want, and they could choose to do that to make. So they be, they have the right to make use and sell if they want to uh, without the owner's permission.
1: Now mm-hmm. we're speculating here, but how do you imagine that might change the decisions made by these for-profit companies in the future? How does that change that? incentive to innovate, that incentive to invest in developing new products?
2: Yeah, so what we just mentioned was these facilities did not exist prior to COVID. Vaccine making was not something that they could always, it was not even that high up on their list. These are for-profit companies. They are not philanthropic. They never said they were philanthropic. They are in the business of saving lives for profit. So, they were doing the most profitable aspect, and they were focused on diagnostics and therapeutics and drug making. So, vaccines were just honestly not that important to them until COVID hit. And then the US did not even, no country really had a large basis of manufacturing for vaccines, especially pandemic level vaccines. You need a lot of supplies, a lot of facilities to be able to do this. They needed money. So it's not like, oh, tomorrow we're gonna make vaccines and we have the ability to do that. You need a lot of incent. you need a lot of upstream, R&D in order to even get to this product. And I think because it happened so fast, people probably don't appreciate what was put in, in terms of R&D investment in order to get these vaccines and to get them to a level in which the public has access to them. So in the future, what happens when you waive patents I think they would think, well, are you going to change the game on us? You're saying, you know, we're going to get all this money and we're going to be able to make a profit from this. And we're going to build facilities and we're going to form deals with our competitors and we're going to share technology and share knowledge. And then one day you're going to say, actually, just kidding. It doesn't have to be patents, could be something else, just the legal landscape of which we operate in one day you're going to say, actually, we've changed it. And there's no way you could go back now after you've, you've shared resources, you've shared knowledge, you've shared technologies, you've built manufacturing facilities together. You're kind of stuck at that point. You know, you're stuck with the losses. So I think there's a strong disincentive to want to invest. There's a strong disincentive to pour a bunch of money and to make themselves liable to losing their technology and their personal you know what they had personally in order to basically now you've dedicated it to the public and that was not part of the deal to begin with again like we said we're sorry but i mean i don't know i don't think they're sorry i think they're just coming out and saying we will do this for money you have to give us money so once you waive it i think it makes them not trust the government in a really bad way i mean we they i think most people already don't trust the government but when you do something like this you are saying i don't i can't predict I can't predict what's going to happen. You can't ask someone to invest substantially into an industry when they cannot predict what's going to happen in the future. So that's what it will do.
1: And I think this this is actually an interesting tie back to one of the things that we spoke about earlier, which is this idea that often procurement professionals are constrained from speaking on anything, even a general topic at a conference, on a podcast, because Mm -hmm. their companies are concerned about what they might reveal. So take that sentiment and now take what we had in Operation Warp Speed, which were major competitors being incentivized to exchange information. And there's, there's always two sides to that. There's the piece of information that you intend to exchange. Mm-hmm. But when you're working closely with other people, there are other subtle things being picked up, ideas yeah. that are floating back and forth. I mean, I would think to most procurement professionals to sort of put us in the shoes of these pharma companies, that's a very scary concept. And we talk about risk all the time and perception of risk. And so the incentive to overcome those risky situations and the potential of knowledge exchange in order to produce these vaccines Mm -hmm. We've all sort of at this point accepted that the vaccines exist. Yes, it was wonderful. Oh, it was really fast. But to take ourselves back to the day when somebody must have said to these companies, we want you to all get on the phone at the same time, exchange data, exchange information, exchange ideas, ideate together, problem solve. That's actually a huge lift that we're asking of these companies. And it's sort of easy to gloss over that now.
2: Yes. And that's actually one of the reasons why a patent vaccine, a patent waiver was kind of silly, because in order to actually make mRNA vaccines, it wasn't just protected by patents. A lot of the techniques is actually protected by trade secrets, manufacturing techniques, um, cell lines. And these this information, like you said, with say by Pfizer and BioNTech, those two companies got together and made the vaccine together. They had to share a lot of proprietary information with the incentive that this will one day be mm-hmm. profitable. You know, so this is like you said, there overall there is no incentive to share this. What happens after you share it? You know, they were meant to be protected by trade secrets. And so, number one, waiving patents, which is is, is silly because it doesn't teach them all the manufacturing techniques that you even need to make a stable vaccine at the end. And then secondly, the fact that you've waived it now, companies have a disincentive to get together and say, now talking to you means I just put it on Google now, you know, none of this is proprietary information anymore.
1: Yeah. And so from this, you know, these stories never end. They sort of roll on and evolve to the next thing. And Mm -hmm. so my thought, and in fact, I actually have a a quote here in front of me that I'll, I'll read for just a second to pull the exact wording in. We start to think about, okay, so what are ultimately the larger picture implications of this? You know, you've made the point that Waiving the patent doesn't give you the technical manufacturing capability. It doesn't give you necessarily all of the data that went into research. So you're not getting the full picture. Uh But at the same time, this does set some kind of precedent in that it has now happened and the WTO member companies have agreed to this. Um, What we know, we've talked about changing the incentive to innovate. Is it realistic to think that this might open the door to the same sort of waiver being suggested in other types of products or property or um, other forms of IP and trademarks?
2: You know, it's the case when people of authority and power do something and they stretch the boundaries just a little bit and usually they stretch it by doing something that you're not quite familiar with you know it's not exactly in violation of what you expect them to do but yeah. it's sort of a little bit different so you don't really can't really say hey that's bizarre or, no you absolutely cannot do that because it's a different animal you kind of don't recognize it and this is how authority and power source spreads over time with something when they do things that you don't really recognize you can't immediately say hey that's that's something that you shouldn't be doing because it's different, and they and they know that. I will not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I think people <laughs> know yeah. that. So they presented something new. Oh, we're going to waive vaccines, and nobody feels really bad for the biopharma industry. Nobody really feels like, oh, poor biopharma, we feel so bad for you. But the truth is, what they did is kind of really screwed them over, and so no, the public doesn't really react. The public doesn't really react. Nobody takes out their pitchfork and really, you know, gets to the says, you shouldn't be doing this. Congress step in and say, this deal shouldn't be made anyway. It has, and you should come out and say, as Congress or some speakers say, we will not enforce this. This will never happen in the United States. None of that happened, none of that happened. So what happens when you're a person of power? Oh. I just got away with it a little bit, you know, let's, let's, let's see what else I can do. Let's, let, let's see what, where this can spread to a little bit, you know, and what, what, these international agreements do is they, they have a lot of provisions over a lot of industries. And now it's almost like, oh, we have some provisions on patents, so now we can regulate patents. You know, yeah. No, you can't. No, you can't. You have no authority to do that. You have no authority to waive a property right in domestic jurisdictions. These were not granted by an international organization. You have no right over this whatsoever. Why are you even saying this? Which I found, this is the part that really made me want to speak of, was that this is very irresponsible. The fact They're they're even saying that they have this authority, and people acting like that's not a big deal is very, I thought that was very irresponsible of them because they know you don't have a right to do this whatsoever. And the US, as All the governing governing body of the United States just said, you don't have a right to do this. And I wish that we didn't take part in it, but we did. And not only did we take part in it, we didn't, nobody in the government really reacted and said, we shouldn't be doing this in the United States.
1: Well, and it is interesting because you Mm -hmm. do have an international organization that I didn't vote for them, right? Right. That is in (laughs) place and they're (laughs) bypassing Our Mm -hmm. national legislative process. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just about the United States. All of these companies, all of these countries that participate have all effectively had the same thing happen, assuming they have some kind of national legislation in place to govern patents. And to a certain extent, by supporting this or even by not stopping it, are allowing the authority of an international organization to grow such that it supersedes laws that we already have on the books, at least here in the United States.
2: Very easily because- what you could do with Congress is there's a filibuster. You could do all these crazy things to hold up a legislation in yeah. Congress. We all learned, apparently, you don't have that over there, you know? <laughs> apparently, so we've talked about IP. We can regulate IP. We've talked about energy. We can regulate energy now, you know? Just now they've they've set the playbook for what they can do, almost. And I, I think that's really kind of scary. Yeah. Now, I
1: will say, when this story first caught my attention, when the proposal leaked, I know now in going back, there were ongoing discussions. This had come up. It had been covered in the news. Um, I didn't notice it until the proposal leaked. There's something dramatic about a leak that just kind of sucked me right in. Mm -hmm. Um, But now that it passed, it kind of passed quietly on the 17th. And I think when maybe you and I were the only two that had our pitchforks, um, we should have done a pitchfork Zoom because I was very surprised how quickly it went through. I was surprised that it went through and that it had been relatively quiet up to that point, but then it continued to be quiet afterwards.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Do we think that there's just too many other things going on? Why? And and this is just speculating. You and I don't have the answer here. Why aren't more people, why aren't more businesses speaking out about their concerns or speaking out about how this will change the way that they approach intellectual mm-hmm. property?
2: Well, I think when you don't work in IP, you will not hear a lot. It is only at a very IP specific, this one community was angry and it did not really spread beyond what was in IP. I think it's two issues. I think the fact that biopharma maybe not, doesn't have a very good reputation. Um, societally you know they are in the business of making money off of you know saving lives yes and we find that you've gained and you've enriched yourselves off of diseases off of you know and because people wanna save the lives of their family members. we paid so much money to the to the biopharma industry and they're just these fat cats up out there. And you know, the truth is I'm not saying they're not, I don't know what they are, but it's hard to feel sorry for them that, oh, boo-hoo, their intellectual property rights got waived, you know? And I think there's also the concept that IP is owned by, you know, the, the, the 1%, you know, mm. the elite, it's owned by big corporations. And that is a misconception. The fact of the matter is, is that patents have mostly helped middle and small companies protect themselves. Big companies, like the really big ones, actually have so much market power. They would actually like to get rid of the patent system because then they get sued less. You know, they have (laughs) market power to just dominate the market with their market power. They don't even care that much. They're buying it just so they don't have to get sued so much. You know, so that's... the the patents have really protected small and middle companies, middle-sized companies. And then you have the same, if they could waive patents, they could waive trademarks and copyrights. That's A lot of that is owned by small companies and individual startups. Copyrights is owned by artists and writers. You know, the people that you confer, you are granted a copyright, common law right the minute you create your work. That is the idea, is to really protect sort of small actors. Now you're coming in and saying all of that all of that is actually subject to being waived by an international organization. So I guess what you're asking is, oh, why why did no one react well? Because they It's biopharma and it's their patents. And I think the idea is that, oh, because they own the COVID vaccine patents, that means, you know, we won't, that means they're they're gonna be so enriched by this awful pandemic that's claimed so many lives and the government's come in and being like, no, we're stepping in here. This is like Teddy Roosevelt with the big trusts and the railroads. We're stepping in in here for the little guy and telling you to F off, you know? But actually that's not the case at all. I want you to realize, when they waive a property right, a right that you have. One day it's biopharma, next day it's gonna be somebody else. You cannot say the government can do this. This is a right, a personal right. And it's a right that was conferred by national jurisdiction, under national jurisdiction. An international organization should not be able to do that. So nobody reacted over this. And I basically, I think, you know, because they just, nobody feels bad or sorry for the pharmaceutical industry.
1: Yeah, and and I can certainly, at least from my own experience, speak to being sort of a a little guy and using copyright as a writer. I've definitely had cases where content that I've written that I've published under my own copyright, Mm -hmm. I have found other people using it in ways that don't allow don't align with what I think is acceptable, and I've been able to say, I have the copyright on this. I Mm -hmm. am asking you to take it down, only take a small piece, attribute it properly. The amount of work that goes into writing anything of substance on its own little scale is probably comparable to the investments and the work and the time that go into R&D in an industry like pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. But people that are consumers or customers of those industries only see the finished product. which is sort of like that proverbial tip of the iceberg, right? There's Mm -hmm. all the money and all the time and all of the risk that's been accepted that's Mm -hmm. below the surface of the water. And it seems like that's sort of what's being forgotten about here because it's not as visible as simply the vaccine in a little
2: vial. They don't see all the failures and trials. They don't see all the lab failures. You don't see all the all the ways they've taken losses because what yes. you saw was the product. But in order to get to that one product, they probably had to go through so many iterations, so many, so many labs that couldn't make something. And this was the one that did. You know, you have to realize how much investment was really put into something yeah. like this on a broad scale across countries and companies.
1: Now, we've talked a little bit about what the bigger picture implications of this might be. And this isn't a direct line, but let's say it's sort of a dotted line. In the spirit, follow on. Um, I have a quote from a recent Wall Street Journal article, which says uh, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently proclaimed that, and here's his quote, Mm -hmm. renewable energy technologies such as battery storage must be treated as essential and freely available global public goods and removing obstacles to knowledge sharing and technological transfer including intellectual property constraints, is crucial for a rapid and fair renewable energy transition. Mm-hmm. So even as a person who does not know much about how patents work, I definitely see the dotted line from what was just passed at the World Trade Organization to this statement coming out of the United Nations.
2: Yeah, I mean, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but there—that was a—that was an interesting transition that we just made here. Quick. You know. And click, because nobody reacted. And it's so funny what you, I have the same quote highlighted. <laughs> Does <laughs> exactly. yours say this <laughs> is very important next to it? Mine has a star and says, this is very important. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you read exactly what I highlighted. Okay, let's, let, these are the words of the UN Secretary General. Renewable energy technologies, such as battery storage, should be treated as essential, freely available global public goods. What is a public good? A public good is non-excludable and non-rivalrous. The best examples of public goods are air and national security. How much air I consume does not diminish how much air you consume and how much national national security is conferred upon me does not diminish what you get. Okay, batteries, EV batteries, they're commodities. The very nature of a commodity is that there's a finite number of commodities. There is no way, it's an impossibility for battery storage technology to be public goods because you make something out of them. You're making a commodity out of them. They cannot, it's impossible. They're acting like what he's trying to say is, oh, everybody will get some. No, that's not the case. They're commodities. I means some people will get it and others won't. And we don't know who's going to get this. That is the thing. You're gonna make them public goods by how Um, IP is a constraint, including IP is a constraint to knowledge sharing. How How is IP a constraint to knowledge sharing? the very basis of a patent is you make a public disclosure in return for your exclusive right you have to write an enabling disclosure you are teaching people what is in your patent the whole point of why we even have a patent system is that people otherwise will keep their knowledge to themselves as trade secrets and you wouldn't have an innovation system and to drive the economy you wanted people to disclose their information so that other people can learn from you. And actually, you, the government wanted to induce people to work around what you just taught and design around what you just made so that we could have access to a lot of different types of technology. So the very basis of patents is to share knowledge. When you get rid of a patent, you actually induce people to not share knowledge. So that is just crazy. And, and then the whole idea of a te- technological transfer, I think patents induce technology technological transfer. They're published around the world. Around the world, people can see what you're making in the US and Europe and all that through patent disclosures. I think what we were talking about on the phone was companies don't have a newsletter. Hey, this is what I'm working on. Hey, this is a, this is exactly the technology I'm investing in. They're reviewing one another's patent disclosure. So for vaccines, they knew who to work with by studying one another's patent disclosures. Oh, they're working on this, they're working on this technology. We could reach out to them and maybe we could work together and share something because this this aligns with what we're doing. And that's how they know to form these very efficient deals that at the end has benefited a lot of people. So these are all the things that I feel like They are saying stuff that sounds nice and it sounds good, like, oh, we're going to get battery technology for everybody. It's not going to be just the rich countries. But number one, it's impossible. And number two, what you're going to do is to just disincentivize people that actually work in these technologies from sharing their knowledge.
1: Well, and it's so interesting that the example of battery technology comes up here because maybe it's just me and we're continuing our dotted line but i hear battery innovation and energy storage and i instantly think elon musk because he has done so much innovation in the area of whether electric vehicles or through the the battery gigafactory right that that he's built Um, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you don't have his phone number when if I had his phone number, this is definitely something that would be on my list. I would call Mm -hmm. him up. And after I got the scoop on the Twitter privatization question, I would ask him, how do you feel about this statement? Because he's the kind of person that's in very capital intensive businesses that Mm -hmm. we have seen. He takes on a lot of risk. He invests a lot of money and other people invest a lot of money. But Mm -hmm. the innovations like Starlink, like SpaceX, like what's Mm -hmm. possible at Tesla and through their battery production, really is at the end about the intellectual property that they're able to create because they have incentives to innovate. In their case, mostly because consumers want to pay Mm -hmm. for these vehicles, but that Mm -hmm. incentive does exist. And you wonder how this sort of changed that decision-making framework.
2: You know, that's so funny. You bring up Elon Musk because he's almost like the human equivalent of the biopharma industry. He's like somebody who's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a lot of money a lot of assets. He shows up at a crucial moment and nobody feels <laughs> bad for him ever. Nobody <laughs> feels bad for him. Oh my God. Elon Musk just lost a bunch of money. You know, nobody feels bad for him, but you got to realize I, I wouldn't feel bad for him. To is like, it's hard to feel bad for the guy. But the thing is, is now the scope of influence just spread. It went from one industry and now from vaccines and now it's going into energy. I'm not saying that this is definitely, but it's, it's just interesting. It's just very interesting how this transition has happened, you know, and then it's going to transition. And the thing is, you want people to know, everyday people, the transition will keep happening until you don't want it to be too late, such that they are regulating every industry and we have no way you have no way to stop it. And you don't know what it does to incentivization. All the the lost inventions out there that could have really saved lives, really impacted us, really been good for beneficial for public health. You don't know what we don't know what we've lost because you don't have the right incentives. And it's hard to say, oh, you have to... you know, I think people don't like the idea that when the company says, I need to make money, and we just sort of oh accept that. You need to make money so we're gonna allow you to make money. But they, that, that 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 they're not saying they're they're not saying they're philanthropic. You they're yeah. being exactly who they they are being exactly who they say they are. You cannot impose a philosophy on people that that's not what they believe. They want to make money. They say, well, do this for the money. So we're, and if you don't want to, give them money directly, you know, at some point, we're in a lot of trouble, we're just going to have to give them taxpayer money directly, if you don't want to do that, then you want to create a system, a legal public policy system, that it will incentivize them to invest their own money, own money at one point. And that's the point of this is because at some point, you don't want us to be so beholden to these companies that we have to throw money at Mm. them directly, because we, we are at a crucial moment, we need your help right now, you want to have you want them to have the incentive incentives beforehand, upstream beforehand for them to invest their own money thinking down later on, this will be a profitable investment.
1: And the phrase that comes to mind for me, as I listen to you say that is too big to fail. We Mm -hmm. don't want, I mean, obviously we need pharma, right? We're getting into more and more complex treatments and medicines all the time. And so Mm -hmm. it's not something that you can, in most cases, cook up in your kitchen. We need these very large companies to manage this. But we certainly don't want to get them to the point where the only thing that's incentivizing them to come up with a treatment for the disease that impacts you or someone that you care about is Mm -hmm. being specifically targeted with government funding. We want them to see the opportunity in the market and to solve and cure those diseases because there's a market that exists and because they get to own the IP Mm -hmm. rights associated with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, warp speed, you know we had to give them money because the pandemic happened. It was hard to foresee. So, right. but they took money directly. Do you want to do that later on at a point where we could have, it might've been preventable. It might've been preventable. Do you want another warp speed when really it could have been a preventable situation, which a foreseeable situation? You know, if you look at how oil is doing right now, you got the president condemning the oil industry. They're, they need to make more and they're at ExxonMobil released a statement and said the this the policy is The policy landscape in the United States is unstable. We had, we invested a lot of money during the pandemic and we lost it. And now we just don't have any more investment. We don't have the incentive to invest in making more into oil right now. Again, nobody feels sorry for oil, but that's what they said. You know, they're not going to be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to make some more oil now for you because I think I see that you need it. They're not like that. So we can all say we hate them, but guess what? They don't really care. So at the end, We want this product that they're making. So, when I I really appreciate you spending
1: this time because I think it's a very complicated topic that didn't really get covered, wasn't really digested. And I think you've done a good job of sort of bringing it to where it means something to people that are not attorneys and do not live in the world of of IP. Mm -hmm. As we start to wrap, I would just want to ask you. What are a few things that you would hope people listening to us or watching us would take away from whether it's basic IP things that you probably learned on day one, but that most Mm -hmm. of us haven't encountered, or what we should be thinking about in terms of how this landscape is changing? What Mm -hmm. are maybe a few takeaways that you would give those of us that are trying to understand this and consider the implications in advance, um, but don't have your specific expertise and background?
2: Well, I guess actually what I would say something really simple is that intellectual property is still a property right. People fight wars over property. Property is one of the most inherent rights that we have. Right now, we are having, we are seeing a degradation of a property right. It is not happening. It's happening to a big industry that's very profitable, Mm -hmm. so it's hard for us to feel too empathetic about something like this. But a property right, but one day it could be your property right, basically. You know, it could be something you own, it could be something that's important to you. It is something, it could be something that you have relied on, you have spent a lot of money on. And you have to realize that when something when a right like a property right gets degraded and you don't react, it could only get worse. It could only get worse because property is valuable knowledge is valuable proprietary Steve. information is valuable there's a very strong incentive for people to want to acquire that for free and if you say no this is not yours unless you say no this is not yours this is this does not belong to you and you have no right to come and try to take it it will keep happening and you know it's really important for everyday people to see it like that
1: well, if people have listened to this conversation and are interested in learning more um, or want to connect with you, what is the best way for them to get in touch?
2: I would say follow me on Twitter. <laughs> yes. And it's um, it's it's got a lot of underscores, but it's my first name, underscore last name underscore and it's IP views. And I don't know why I picked that name. I should have just done (laughs) when likes patents and just, that's my,
1: (laughs) but I will link to that from the episode page actually, so that if, if people want to follow you, they can, they can just click the link. Um, And thank you so much for your willingness to come on and discuss this story and share your expertise. I think it's fascinating. And I really hope we get some people's attention with this.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this issue. So thank you very much.
1: And then my last word is to everybody that's listening in or watching the video, as I always ask you at the end of my episodes, please don't allow this to be a one-way conversation. Post your comments, share this episode, insert your own information if you've been following this story and come across something that Wen and I didn't discuss today. The more of us that discuss this, the more we're all going to understand it and the more awareness we can raise on what's an incredibly important topic to everyone in any business. So until next time, thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kelly Barner, your host for Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Thank you so much for joining me and have a great rest of your day.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dial P for Procurement and for being an active part of the Supply Chain Now community. Please check out all of our shows and events at SupplyChainNow.com. Make sure you follow Dial P for Procurement on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to catch all the latest programming details. We'll see you soon for the next episode of Dial P for Procurement.